So without electric vehicles, we'll never reach our GHG emission reduction targets. It mm -hmm. won't happen with gas cars. It, it just won't. Because all the, the energy efficiency that we have seen in gas vehicles, most of the energy efficiency has gone to what? Bigger and more powerful vehicles. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 091, number 91 of the Flux Capacitor. My guest on today's pod is Danielle Breton, the president and CEO of Electric Mobility Canada, known as EMC. Daniel joined me for a conversation about the role EMC plays in promoting the electrification of transportation, popular misconceptions about electric vehicles, zero emission vehicle mandates, what EMC's opinion research has shown, and the intransigence of some, not all, car manufacturers. We close the conversation with a recommendation for a very timely report for addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Daniel Breton, recorded in mid-January 2024 on Zoom. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. It's great to finally get you on to talk about electric mobility. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I've been uh, I've been talking to you and uh, working, collaborating with you uh, over the past what few years, yep. ever since I started at EMC, and it's a real pleasure for me to be here. Yeah. So maybe for the listener, why don't we start with uh, EMC, Electric Mobility Canada? Uh, maybe just a little bit of background to explain, you know, what the organization is, where it came from, uh, what the what the uh, the vision and the mission is. Yeah. So well, EMC's was founded in two thousand six by Al Cormier and Sylvain Castonguay. Mm -hmm. um, so two engineers working to accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. Yep. Uh, so they've been around for a while. Uh, I personally have been working in the EV space for more than two decades. Yep. Uh, so we are an industry association because some people tend to think that we are an environmental group. We're not. Mm -hmm. uh, we have members ranging from utilities, car, truck, bus, off-road, bolt manufacturers, uh, research centers, government departments, unions, mm -hmm. um, cities, universities, mining companies. So we're basically the national, I would say, hub mm -hmm. for everything related to electric transportation. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you took on this role uh, how many years ago when you, you joined as the... It, it's going to be four years in March. Yeah. Uh, and if you go back four years ago, I started March 9th. 2020. Okay. On March 12th, everything was shut down. <laughs> <laughs> so I started uh, in crisis mode. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then you spend, uh, I, I think, a, a fair amount of your time on policy issues as well, right? Because that's where you and I have been connecting. We've been appearing before parliamentary committees, for example, together. Exactly. Exactly. So we 
very often have meetings with the federal government, with elected officials. Um, I mean, in Ottawa, at the provincial level, yep. in cities, uh, to try and explain to them what uh, the EV industry does, mm -hmm. what EV policies mean, what's their impact. Uh, it can be on subsidies, regulation, infrastructure, uh, environmental impact, obviously, health, yep. Yep. Uh, anything related to uh, the EV world. And, uh, and, and I mean, obviously, guys like you and I need to talk because, you know, we're very interconnected because we need you, you need us. I mean, we have to work together to make things move in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I ask people to come on the podcast is, uh, is about their journey. I'm always interested in terms of, you know, what, what, what people's journey was to the, to the role that they've got. Uh, and so what was, what was your journey to this role? Again, I always make the joke when, when you were a young kid on the, in the, on the playground, uh, did you always dream of, uh, of running a national association promoting electric mobility? So what was your journey to, to, to this role? Well, um, just to give you the context of where I'm coming from, I grew up right beside the Montreal East refineries when I was young, mm -hmm. a block away. Right. So back then there was eight ref there were eight refineries in Montreal East. So uh, I saw uh, spills, fires, explosions. Mm -hmm. from the oil industry uh, in my neighborhood. I mean, I was nine or 10 years old when uh, there was a, uh, a truck that, you know, that fell to the side mm -hmm. and oil, the oil in the truck went into the, all you know, on, in, on the street and into what you call the uh, Lizigou. What do yeah. you call that? Into the sewers, yeah. In the sewers? Yeah. When the truck caught on fire, the manhole started to fly in my neighborhood. Oh, boy. So some people died. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously that had a big impact on me. Mm -hmm. I said, there might be a different way to to uh, reduce our dependence on fossil fuel and on oil in particular. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I had an uncle who worked for Ford and then GM in the U.S. and then Quebec. Uh, and we talked about cars all the time you know so mm -hmm. go back to the first and then second oil crisis uh where uh for those of you who are old enough to remember people were waiting line price of gas went way up all of a yep. sudden mm -hmm. uh there was restrictions and uh when i was in university uh we were in the middle of the second oil crisis and i was thinking that there might be another way to maybe uh, propel our cars. Mm -hmm. So I was in high school and then I was in university and we started talking about hydrogen cars and electric cars. Keep in mind, that's 40 years ago. Yep. Uh, but nothing came of it for a long time. And all of a sudden, in the 1990s, we were starting to talk again about electric cars. Mm -hmm. uh, now, beyond my uncle, I had my cousin who was working as an engineer on hydrogen cars and electric cars for GM. Hmm. And we kept having those conversations. When I was in university, uh, the first time I went to university, I was uh, in international relations. And back in the day, to me, the, geopol the geopolitics of oil were overwhelming. Yep. You know, 
how dependent we are on oil, what are the issues with, you know, wars related to oil yep. and uh, coup d'etat like, related to oil. So all of that to me was part of what I was thinking. And I was saying, there might, there might be another way. We have to do better than this. And then came air pollution and climate change. Mm-hmm. So I went back to university and I studied the environment and communications uh, at the beginning of the 2000s and went back to university once again to study uh, uh, sustainable carbon management and life cycle analysis. Uh, so to me, the idea was to find a way for us to be less dependent on fossil fuel in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started talking about and being interested and I bought, I, I ordered myself my first hybrid vehicle a quarter of a century ago. I went shopping for a car 25 or 26 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I still have that car, by the way. I bought it. I mean, so I went to different dealerships. They had no clue what I was talking about. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah your manufacturer sells this car. I'm interested in buying this car. And I had to explain to the salesperson how the vehicle worked. Wow. And uh, and uh, 20 years ago, I started writing in the media about mm-hmm. hybrid and electric cars and new technologies and the ge- geopolitics of oil and gas and electricity. And uh, I, I started with a, a blog called Auto 123. And then I went on to the Devoir, Radio-Canada, Journal de Montréal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I said, so we have to find a way. In 2005, I created a group called MCN21. It was based in Quebec, and, and the group was uh, me with some uh, chemists, environmentalists, econ- economists, engineers, physicists, working at finding new ways for us to, de- to diminish our depend- the dependence on fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, so we, we published a book on the subject uh, 16, 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I went into politics. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I went into politics, that's in 2008 for the NDP. I worked with Jack Layton back in the day. Right. I wrote for the NDP back then the energy transition platform, electric mobility platform. And uh, I presented that to the media. And, uh, and uh, it was really interesting because uh, it was not part at all of the discussion back in the day. Right. But. But, I mean, we were still, back then, we are talking about climate change and the issues with uh, oil sands. And uh, and after that, I kept working on that, wrote books on the subject of mm-hmm. energy transition, electric mobility, wrote many articles in different media in French and English. And then I went into politics again for the Parti Québécois mm-hmm. in 2012, where I, I was environment minister and I was in charge of the first electric mobility strategy for the government of Quebec. Right. That's more than 10 years ago now. Uh, and all that led me to to say, whether it's in Quebec or in Canada, we have to find a way to accelerate this transition. What are the best policies? So I've been doing research, doing reports, uh, working with many stakeholders from either Quebec or the rest of Canada on finding ways to make this work. And uh, when uh, at one point, between us, because I'm really well known in Quebec. For those mm-hmm. who live in Canada, they might not know me as well. But I've been in the media for 25 years in Quebec. So, so I decided to take my experience and my knowledge outside of Quebec to bring it to the rest of Canada to say, how can we be inspired by what's happening 
anywhere in the world from the leaders, uh, whether it's, you know, as you know, when it comes to EVs, it's uh, Norway yep. and Sweden, mm -hmm. uh, California, but Quebec and BC are leaders as well. Mm -hmm. So this, this is stuff that I brought into EMC. And I wanted to make sure when I came into EMC uh, that uh, we would have, I would say, a bigger influence, a bigger footprint on the discussion. Because when I came in at EMC, EMC was small, mm -hmm. was not well known. Just to give you an example, uh, in 2020, we did something like 30 interviews in 2020. Last year, we did 270. Right. Yeah. So, so because... I've been in the media for a long time. I have a lot of experience with media interviews. So it's very important for us that people know uh, what needs to be done. And there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there when it comes to electric vehicles, whether it's light, medium, or heavy-duty vehicles. Mm -hmm. And that's that's on a daily basis. Yeah. that This is part of our mission to make sure that people understand the issues, the challenges, and the opportunities as well. I wanted to follow up on on actually the misinformation that that one gets about electric uh, electric mobility and and electric vehicles because that one of the things that I absolutely enjoy is following you on social media uh, and uh, <laughs> no, I, I really do because because you're you're always um, uh, kind of uh, identifying those those misconceptions about mobility and debunking them uh in uh, in in on social media i know you do it you know whenever whenever you're speaking to regular media you do it in, in front of parliamentary committees and so on but uh i find it particularly interesting just to, to follow those those tidbits that you come up with uh, on social media so what are some of the the biggest uh, sort of pieces of uh, uh mis uh, misinformation and and misconceptions that really bug you the most well uh the grid won't handle the uptake in evs and if that's one thing that you know about, it's that, you know, that it's that it is a challenge. We will need more electricity as time goes by. That's a that's a fact. Yep. But as you and I know, uh, EVs are not going to be the biggest challenge. It's going to be industry, GDP, population growth. Mm -hmm. And nobody talks about that. Yeah. And to me, this is this is a big deal that elected officials, engineers, People who should know about this mm -hmm. really are uh, sharing the wrong information uh, about something that's very important. Yeah, yeah. To me, you that's know, a big. Yeah, no, I know, and, and you know, you and know, I've talked about this one in the past. That I think, I think we spoke just after a little about a year and a half ago. I had an opportunity to go to Norway, and uh, you, you, you'd ask me, you know, my, my, my. Um, sort of my my perceptions when I came back and and one of them was precisely on this point because we talked about it in the past that uh, I came back and you know realized that they were selling you know between 80 and 90 percent of new vehicles were electric vehicles and yeah. their grid didn't collapse uh, the, nope. you know um, the the grid was adapting they built their infrastructure um, it kept pace and things seemed to work and 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 uh... When I hear these days, because they have a cold snap in Alberta and in Western Canada, and they're saying, you know, what would happen if everybody had an EV? I said, well, just have to go to Norway. You'll see it exactly what's happening now. And I and I, I wrote to someone who uh, is from Alberta, and I told them, before you get to where Norway is now, it's going to take you 20 years. Yes. You have 20 years to adapt your grid. Mm -hmm. So no panic here. So, uh, so, uh, 
to, to me, this is a big one. There are other ones, you know, regarding environmental impact of electric vehicles. Uh, so, uh, so there's a lot of disinformation. It's not misinformation. It's disinformation okay. when it comes to uh, electric vehicles and the environment. And this is the field where I am a specialist. Mm -hmm. This is stuff that I've been writing about for decades now. And uh, when I have people trying to confront me with stuff like they've seen a report here or there, uh, and 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 it happens in French and in English as well. I mean, right. people yeah. in Quebec will tell me, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> I know better. I'm on mm -hmm. Facebook. I did some research. I know better. Uh, but I mean, that's what a, that's part of what social media is. You know, people can comment on anything without knowing anything about any subject. Yeah. Uh, that's not who I am. That, that's not who I am. I'm sure that's not who you are. I mean, I comment when I, when I write on social media, apart from maybe Facebook, a picture of my dogs. I mean, when I write on Twitter and LinkedIn, it's about my trade, what I do. Yeah. And I know about my stuff. And, and, you know, when I put something in, you always see some kind of link to a study or something, yep. you know, yep. Yep. and then I have people from, Anywhere, I mean, I, I get comments from Europe and Asia and the U.S. and Canada uh, regarding how much I don't know about this. Uh, and I say, that's really interesting because that's all I do. That's all I've been doing for decades. Uh, but, but to me, uh, sometimes I quote, uh, I, I did a, a post a couple of weeks ago. And I, when I'm, I'm 61 years old, I'm going to be 62 this year. When I was a kid, my hero was Jean Bedivo. Yep. And I said, uh, this guy, one of the greatest players in the history of hockey, the best ambassadors ever in the history of hockey. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, and I said, uh, he was the first professional, not professional hockey player, first professional player of any sport. Uh, creating a foundation to help sick kids. You know, that's 50 plus years ago. Yeah. And still, journalists uh, managed to criticize him and fans managed to boo him. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, if because you're being booed or criticized, you stop doing what you're doing, well, you won't go anywhere. Because yeah. if Jean-Bedivou can get criticized, yep. we all can. But that shouldn't stop us from doing what for doing from doing what we want to do. Mm -hmm. And I know what I'm doing is the right thing. I know what you're doing is the right thing. So we will face criticism, and that's part of life. But uh, we know we're trying to make the best, both for our industry, but also for society. Yeah. So that's why it shouldn't stop us. Yeah. Well, as I said, I I I thoroughly enjoy following your your social media posts. And I always put links, um, you know, uh, on the on the show page for the podcast. So I will include links for your Twitter or your 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 X uh, X uh, feed you know. because it's it's great. And the latest thing I saw, because I was going to ask you, you know, um, you know what it, what uh, what's in your driveway right now? But I saw what's in your driveway right now is an electric snowblower. So oh know, yeah, <laughs> I thought I thought that was I thought that was a really fun post uh, that that you put on there about mobility isn't just cars and trucks. Um, oh, yeah, you're right. I, I thought that was a terrific post, but yeah. yeah so, so there, there will be a link to this, and I urge the listeners to, to take a look because it it is uh, uh, interesting. Both the, the fun stuff that you post, but also all of the all of the the links to factual 
uh, reports. That that that's yeah. that's particularly helpful. Can can we talk a little bit about zero emission vehicle mandates? Because there's yeah. been a lot of talk about ZEV mandates as well. Oh my and, God. And I know that's one of the areas where I'm sure the listeners scratching scratching their heads and saying, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it necessary? Is it not necessary? Because that one, there's a lot of misinformation around about, isn't oh, there? Uh, that's the understatement of the day. Uh, listen, I mean, most car manufacturers in the industry are against regulation on EV sales. Yeah. Not all of them, most of them. For, for example, uh, in December, when the federal government announced that they would adopt the EV availability standard, which is, you know, a different name for the same thing, the EV mandate. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so many car manufacturers and uh, industry, traditional or old school industry associations came out really strongly against this, this saying it would be a disaster. It would never work. It would uh, get people to have more expensive cars. Uh, I mean, all of this nonsense that I've been hearing for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, VW and Hyundai uh, didn't criticize it. They said, not a problem. Obviously, Tesla, Rivian, and all the other EV manufacturers are obviously in favor of this. Yep. But but you have to keep in mind one thing. Um most car manufacturers don't like regulation, whatever the regulation. Right. Yeah. So 70 years ago, most car manufacturers were against seatbelts. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 50 years ago, they yeah. were against anti-pollution system. Right. So so they kept coming up with lines saying, you know, it's going to kill our industry. We'll lose jobs. We'll have to fire workers. Uh so this is nothing new. This is part of an old pitch that we've been hearing for decades. And I'm old enough to remember that <laughs> back in the eighties and the nineties, when they were talking about airbags, you know? Yep. So all of this discussion that's going on right now, if you have enough perspective, you know that this is nothing new. <laughs> uh, will it be a challenge? Absolutely. Some car manufacturers, I am predicting that some car manufacturers will disappear between now and 2035. Right. Right. But if you go back to 2008, 2009, when we had the financial crisis, there were companies like Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Daewoo, Saab, Plymouth, who existed back then, who don't exist anymore. Right. That's, that's, that's what happens with technology changes. That's what happened with market changes. Uh, and uh, often, I remember a year ago, I did an interview to, with uh, someone from the Toronto Star, and I said, some car manufacturers will have their Kodak moment. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Kodak invented, you know, digital photography. They did not want to put it on the market because they said it's going to uh, interfere with our current business model. Yeah. Well, we all know what happened. Yeah. Blockbuster is the same thing with Netflix arrived. Yeah. We could, we had, I mean... I, I saw a post about uh, three or four months ago. I don't know if you remember that. Back in the fall when some people said uh, EV sales are going down. Things yes. are not going well. Yep. And then the, the numbers came out and it was exactly the opposite. Yeah. EV sales were up. So the narrative from some car manufacturers and some people in the media was that no, people are not buying EVs. And when we got the stats, it was exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. So to me, 
that tells you what kind of uh, lobbying and and uh, work to try and uh, how shall I put this uh, to try and uh, change the narrative so people would be afraid of EVs or saying oh, EVs are not happening uh, or that people are not interested or they're too expensive uh, and uh, and there was uh, a survey published uh, last summer by JD Powers uh -huh. that. Uh, people's interest in Canada to buy an EV went down like 15% between 2022 and 2023. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the survey and they were asking questions like, uh, so uh, are you worried about the range? Are you worried about the impact of people buying EVs uh, crashing the grid? Mm -hmm. I was saying to myself, how many Canadians know about the grid? How yeah. the grid works? Yeah. I mean, most people hardly even know what happens when you plug the toaster into your uh, outlet? Yep. So to me, these were loaded questions. So yeah. that's why when when I saw that, I said, okay, so we have to do our own survey. So we we called Abacus. We worked on them. Uh, we worked with them on a survey. And uh, we said, first, let's ask people who own an EV currently if they would buy their next car would be an EV or a mm -hmm. PHE. So we ended up 90% approximately of Canadians would buy another EV. Yep. Interestingly, in Ontario, it was 83%. In Quebec, it was 97%. Mm -hmm. So it's a 14-point difference, which is significant. I have a pretty good idea on to why people would buy another EV in Quebec more than in Ontario. First of all, because there's no rebate anymore in Ontario. And second of all, because there are a lot more EV chargers in Ontario than there are in Quebec. So to me, these are two elements. Or, to, there, are, there are more chargers in more chargers in Quebec than Ontario. Way more chargers yes, in Quebec right. than Ontario, yeah. and they're reliable. Yeah. Yes. So to me, that's that's a big deal. But when you when we spoke, when we asked a question about to non EV owners if they would buy an EV, forty three percent of of them said yes, I'm interested. Mm -hmm. And then we went on to ask uh, non EV owners about range of electric cars, price of electric cars, all these questions, I'll give you an example. Uh, we asked Canadians, according to Auto Trader in September 2023, what was the average selling price of a new vehicle in Canada? So we gave them a range, you mm -hmm. know, like between 30 and 40, 40 and 50, 50 and 60, 60 and 70. The right answer was between 60 and 70. Now the average selling price of a new car in Canada is above $60,000, it's approximately $67,000, which I find crazy, Yeah, but that's what's happening right now. Yeah. One of the things that explains this is the fact that the vast majority of car manufacturers do not offer entry-level gas cars anymore. Yeah, yeah. So the entry-level, I'll give you an example. Entry-level Ford, uh, Ford is 35 grand. Yeah. Cheapest Ford is a 35 grand car. Yep. The cheapest... Dodge is 40 grand. The cheapest Chrysler is 50 grand. Yeah. So I think this explains why the price of an average uh, a new car is as high it is as it is. The price has gone up quite significantly over the past five years. So that's one thing. Obviously, the vast majority of Canadians that were surveyed never never thought that it would it would, it would be that expensive, mm -hmm. above sixty thousand dollars. Yeah. So then I, we asked the questions, how many 
EVs and PHEVs are available below the average selling price of a new car? <laughs> well, the, the right answer is approximately 50 different models. Yeah. Yeah. Which goes against the misconception or the perception that EVs are way more expensive than regular gas cars. <laughs> it's actually less and less true. And when we asked that question, we said, including the federal rebate. Mm -hmm. Let's say the car is $67,000 minus $5,000 is $62,000. But our calculation was not including provincial rebates, which are currently in six provinces plus two territories, and that will be a seventh province, seventh province soon, Manitoba. Mm -hmm. My point is that EVs are actually a lot more affordable than people think. Right. And then we asked all these questions and we gave the right answer. Once somebody would answer the question, afterwards we would show them the right answer. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the same survey, once people got the right answer to their questions, people's interest in buying an EV or a PHEV went from 43% to 63%. Wow. Yeah. So this is a 20-point jump after a 15-minute survey. Mm -hmm. which explains how much education information and information we have to do because, believe it or not, the majority of Canadians don't even know that EV rebates exist. Yeah. Even in yeah. So, so to me, education is a big deal. And, and when we're talking about all these misconceptions and disinformation, that's a big deal. So, so, when we're talking about the EV availability standard, I will explain it very quickly. It's it's car manufacturers being mandated to sell a growing percentage of electric cars as years go by. So the mandate is 20% by 2026, 60% mm -hmm. by 2030, and 100% by 2035. So the, the people who criticize this say that we shouldn't, regulate what people drive. We shouldn't force people to buy an electric car. So what I say to them is that we have a climate crisis. And the issue right now that we have in Canada is that we've seen record forest fires, as you know, <laughs> last year. Mm -hmm. The federal government has been discussing with car manufacturers for decades on ways to reduce their GHG emissions. Right Back in 2005, almost 20 years ago, the car manufacturers signed a voluntary agreement to reduce their GHG emissions by 5.2 megatons between 2005 and 2010. Because it was voluntary and there was no penalty if they didn't reach target, they missed the target by 95%. Yeah. So there was a report published in 2019 from the International Energy Agency that established that Canada's light-duty vehicle fleet was dead last in the world for GHG emissions and fuel average fuel consumption per kilometer driven. We're mm -hmm. last. Mm -hmm. There was another report published last year that said, yeah, we're still last. So when people say that we should let the market decide what people will want or not want, the issue is that right now, Canadians do not have the choice to buy a fuel-efficient gas vehicle. Not so much anymore because... Entry-level fuel-efficient cars are, are not even available in Canada. Right. Yeah. Okay. And even though cars have gotten more efficient, if you look at the past 20 years, uh, 
average fuel consumption has only gone down 13% mm -hmm. in 20 years. Now, if Canada wants to reach its target to go minus 40 to 45% by 2030 compared to 2005, we have 11 years compared to 2019. So in 11 years, we should bring it down by basically 20, uh, 30 to 32% compared okay. to 13% decrease we've seen in the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. So 30% in 11 years versus 13% in 20 years. So without electric vehicles, we'll never reach our GHG emission reduction targets. Mm -hmm. Never. It mm -hmm. won't happen with gas cars. It, it just won't. Because all the, the energy efficiency that we have seen in gas vehicles, most of the energy efficiency has gone to what? Bigger and more powerful vehicles. Right. Yeah. So yeah. they're not that more much more fuel efficient. They are more energy efficient. But when you just keep getting the car bigger and more powerful, it means that all the savings that you could have done if this, the car had stayed the same size with a smaller engine, uh, it's pretty much lost. Right. That's because we've gone with big, larger and larger SUVs and pickup trucks. And, and so the size of the vehicles in the fleet has gotten larger. And to your point, the, those those entry levels have completely disappeared. Yeah, exactly. So so when we look at energy consumption uh, and uh, GHG emission, we're not going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So the regulation is after decades of the federal government talking to car manufacturers, and the car manufacturers basically not doing enough, the government had no choice but to say, now we have to regulate. Yeah. So some car manufacturers, what I find really interesting, will say, well, why don't we just keep doing what we have done in the past and just align with the U.S. EPA regulation that's been announced by the Biden administration last year? So uh, to me, what I find really funny, and I'm not saying funny, haha, but funny, strange, yeah. or funny, not funny, is that... Uh, on one end, on the on the northern part of the border, some car manufacturers are saying, let's just align with the US EPA. And the same car manufacturers south of the border say, let's weaken the US EPA regulation. Ah, right. So my line to the media has been, well, some car manufacturers talk from both sides of their mouth on both sides of the border. Mm -hmm. Because it's 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 interesting to hear them say, yeah, 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 let's just align with the US. But not only that, but if you have a change in government south of the border mm -hmm. decides to roll back on regulation for light-duty vehicles, which we have seen, keep in mind that back in 2011-2012, when the, the Obama administration came in with more stringent regulation, when Donald Trump was elected, he rolled back on the regulation. Right. Yeah. If Donald Trump is re-elected in 2024... There's a chance, actually, there's more than a chance that he actually said it, and he would roll back on the regulation for the U.S. EPA standards. Yeah. So for us, the federal EV availability standard to make sure that we have more electric cars and we lower our GHG emissions is also a backstop against U.S. administration deciding to roll back. Because if we just decide to uh, align with the U.S. and the U.S. rolled back, it means that we roll back as well while we're already dead last in the world. Mm -hmm. So we cannot go in that direction. To me, this is very important. And when, and, and one thing as a former elected official, what I find a bit disconcerting is the fact that uh, 
When elected officials say we should align with U.S. regulation, I once said to one of them, I said, you have been elected to adopt laws for Canada. <clears throat> you are not a U.S. elected official. You are here to serve the Canadian people. And when car manufacturers say we are an integrated market, well, to you, we are not a market. We are a country. If the car manufacturers don't want to see that, you have to see that. Right. You have to regulate for your constituents. Mm -hmm. Because you're not in business, you're in politics, and you go to the House of Commons to adopt laws. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to adopt laws for the 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 you know the the safety and the well-being of Canadians, what are you doing in politics? <laughs> <laughs> is that a is that a message that is uh it, it lands with uh with some resonance uh uh, or or do you get pushback from, from some folks when you try and deliver that message? I do I do get pushback from some folks, but as a former elected official, as a former minister, yeah, I feel that I have the authority to say it. Yeah, you bring a different perspective because of because of the time that you've spent. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And 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 uh, I think that is if I don't say it, who will say it? You know? Yeah. 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 Hey, uh, Danielle, what are what are some of the big lessons learned if we look at the, some of those other jurisdictions that have have done very well in terms of moving towards uh, electrical mobility? Like we we you know we uh, we mentioned earlier um, uh, Norway, for example. Um, yeah. What was has been the secret to their success? And is there anything we can learn from from that to the, to help us? Because they're you know they're they're above eighty percent in terms of uh, new vehicle sales. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the lessons that I think we should learn when it comes to Norway is uh, that the backbone of the EV infrastructure is home charging. Ah, okay. So uh, we tend to focus a lot on public charging. Yep. What I've been telling folks at the federal government level is uh, they are doing everything they can so can people can charge at home. Mm -hmm. Whether you live in a multi-unit residential building, yep. whether you live in a single-unit home, install chargers anywhere you can. Yep. Once you have done that, the public charging issue is less and less of a challenge because charging at home overnight makes, makes things so much easier for people on, the, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, 91%, according to StatsCan, 91% of Canadians drive 35 kilometers or less to go to work in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yep. 91%. So that means that every day they leave their home, they go to work, they come back. They don't even they don't even need a public charger. Most people charge 80 to 90% of the time at home. So yeah. if we make sure that we handle home charging, residential charging, MERB charging, uh, a big part of the challenge will just fall by itself. Mm -hmm. Uh one thing that I can tell you about is that I live in rural Quebec. And a lot of people talk about the fact that rural Canadians are going to be faced with a challenge when it comes to charging. Actually, no. Yeah. <laughs> because most people living in rural Canada either live in a single unit home and they have a driveway or a garage. Mm -hmm. Not many high tower buildings in my neighborhood. Right. Yeah. You know, so once you take care of home charging, and if people live way out, way out in the middle of nowhere, they can buy a PHEV. But for their daily driving, 
they'll drive around their house or their municipality or their neighborhood or their region. So they'll do most of their driving with uh, going electric. Yeah. But for most Canadians, if you live in rural Canada, having an EV is not a, is not a big deal. The biggest challenge is not rural Canada. The biggest challenge is remote areas when you're off grid, yep. which is a very different topic, but it's only one and a half, two percent of the population of Canada. And the other one is downtown areas. Right. The multi-unit buildings, yeah. Multi-unit buildings and the, you know, the the uh business towers. Uh this is where you need a lot of chargers. So mm -hmm. I will I'll give you the example of Norway. I went to a municipality called Agendal, which is three three hundred kilometers away from Oslo, and uh, and in the in the downtown part of that city of 50,000 people, there was a public parking, hundred fifty parking spots. There was seventy level two chargers for hundred fifty parking spots. I went to the Toronto Convention Center yeah. two months ago. Yeah, about five thousand parking spots and three chargers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so to me, this is a place where we need to install a lot more chargers. So we know what we know what we need to do, and the government needs the government, both federal, municipal, and provincial. They all need to step up to install EV chargers. But the public sector, not, not, but the private sector, I mean, private companies who are interested and want to invest in EV charging, can work in partnership with. Uh, car manufacturers and governments to make sure that we install those chargers appropriately. So this is stuff that we are working on at EMC. So I think one of the lessons is that. The other lesson I would say is uh, Norway is a cold country. People actually drive more with their EV on a yearly basis mm -hmm. than people drive their gas car in Alberta on a yearly basis. Mm -hmm. More mileage. So education is so important for Canadians to uh, understand what the issues and challenges, the technology, how it works. Because right now, what we are facing in Canada is what I would call a culture war. Yeah. Uh, some people would rather be dead than to buy an electric car. And it has nothing to do with technology. Mm -hmm. You go to the U.S., you know, you have Democrats and Republicans. And Democrats and Democrat states will buy EVs and Republicans and Republican states will hardly ever buy any EVs. Hmm. It has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with culture. And we are seeing more and more of that. And I would say conservative provinces versus non-conservative provinces, in particular, uh, Ontario, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Alberta. Now Manitoba has an NDP government. We'll see how that plays. But but to me, this is a big issue because we're seeing Quebec on one end, BC on the other end, mm -hmm. with non-conservative government where we see EV policies making sure that EV adoption goes a lot faster than, let's say, in Alberta or Saskatchewan. Uh, so to me, the culture war is a very big challenge. And I'm sure you've heard about this and you've dealt with this because of Electricity Canada Maybe you can tell me about this, but I, I have the feeling that when it comes to oil and gas versus electricity or renewable, this is a conversation that I find very tough because some people are saying, you know, you know, us, you know, oil and gas, that's perfect. That's reliable. We can't trust. We can't trust electricity. 
We won't know if the grid will hold up. And we've seen that with the cold snap recently. Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, this is part of the culture war and this is part of the misinformation, or I would say uh, lack of conversation that is being constructive between the pros and the cons and the, you know, the one, me on one end and the gas folks on the other end. So I don't know, have you had to deal with that? We're just coming off a, a, a pretty significant uh, uh, weekend uh, where uh, Alberta was in a deep freeze, uh, yeah. and they they declared uh, some some grid emergencies. And uh, yes, absolutely, there was there were there was a a lot of uh, comment uh, uh, put out there by you know a variety of people about the you know whether or not this uh, this uh, this should convince us that uh, mass electrification is is not really a good idea. Um, because uh, because of uh, you know because of the, the the deep freeze that we've seen, but of course you know as one of my colleagues today as we were, we were chatting on the way you know the the comment is well you can't you can't trust an, an electric vehicle because what happens if the power goes out? Well, if the power goes out, your pump at your gas station doesn't work, um, but your EV may already be charged up because you know if you're a home charger, you're probably keeping it at eighty percent at all times anyway. So yeah, it, it has certainly been been dragged. These these uh, these issues have certainly been dragged into uh, you know into our domain as well, um, but listen, I I I know we've been uh, chatting for a while, uh, but I did want to get in two more questions though. The first one is uh, apart from you know your snowblower, uh, what are you driving these days, Danielle? <laughs> apart from my snowblower, well, yeah. I'm, what are you what are you driving? For, well, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I own a Tesla Model 3, mm -hmm. and my wife drives a Smart for 2 electric. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have been driving and testing all EV, EVs and PHEVs on the market for more than 20 years. Yep. So I, I try them all, and, yeah. and it's very important for me to try them all. And so I because you've been doing this as, uh, you know, as, a, as a journalist and as a commentator, how how many different models would you guess that you've driven over the years? Uh, approximately fifteen hundred. Wow. Okay. Yeah, approximately. So yeah. so, you know, about thirty a year for. Yeah. Yeah, for a long time. Wow. Okay. For uh, thirty a year, well, more than that actually. No, I would say twelve hundred. Twelve hundred. Let's be honest. Uh, but but still, I mean that's a lot because sometimes I would try two or three, approximately yeah. twelve hundred, I would say. Uh, but but my point is that I've been trying gas cars and hybrid cars and plug-in hybrid electric cars and hydrogen cars, and battery electric cars and good cars and bad cars because to this day, I mean there are still some good electric cars and some bad electric cars, mm -hmm. but just like there are some good bas good uh, gas cars and bad gas cars. I mean. Some are better than others. We all know that. Uh, and uh, and I find it really interesting. You know what? Uh, back in 2022, I don't know if you remember this or if you saw this. In February of 2022, we did a day uh, with uh, 21 different electric cars. And we drove it from Trois-Rivières to where I live. And uh, I live right by the St. Lawrence River mm -hmm. in a small village called Saint-Ignace with 2000 uh citizens yep. and in the winter we have an ice road on the saint lawrence river which is 24 kilometers long mm -hmm. so 
we brought the electric cars on the ice road while there was an ice fishing contest. <laughs> and, uh, it was really funny. Uh, but but this is stuff I do every winter. So we will organize a new test in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. uh, with different electric cars as new models come you know to market. Uh, but this is stuff that I do almost on a daily basis. I test my car. I test somebody else's car to see how the heating works, yep. uh, energy consumption, and all that. And I write all that down. And this is why I can come up with stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter almost every day because I have so many years, you know, behind yeah. my belt of testing cars and testing technologies and all that. And uh, that's why I find it funny when people come to me and say, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final final question, Daniel. Um, we have something that uh, we call the Flux Capacitor Book Club. So anybody that comes on the podcast, we we ask for a book recommendation. And so we uh, assemble all of that together. So what would be your recommendation that we uh, we should add to uh, to the readers or to the listeners uh, reading list? I'll be honest with you. I don't read a lot of books, but I read a, I read a lot of reports. Okay. Uh, and there was a report. I could send you the link if you want. Uh, it's called um, Time for a U-Turn, published in 2017 by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, it, the uh, the second title was 75 Years of Intransigence for car, from Car Manufacturers. Okay. Uh, that one I find really interesting because it explains to uh, to regular folks how many car manufacturers have been resisting change and regulation ever since the 1950s. And to me, I think this is a lesson to learn, but, uh, and I told you this before we started the interview, I should have a book out by the fall, one in English and one in French uh, about EV realities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, not just, it's it's not a sales pitch, but it's to give scientific data for people to understand the issues, uh, the technology, electricity demand, uh, and environmental footprint, uh, uh, myths uh, about electric cars, uh, ways to drive and maintain electric cars, anything that people should know. And what I find really strange is that i've been talking about this in the media for so long that naively uh i was thinking back in 2012 2013 that by 2020 i wouldn't have anything to say because people would all know this (laughs) if only yeah if only Mm -hmm. so what i found is that Back then, there was only a few early adopters who were interested. So there was only a little bunch of us interested in this. Now that the general public is interested, is asking questions, now we have regular regular, uh, journalists who talk about electric cars. And most of the articles that I read about EVs in regular media or uh, auto media make significant mistakes when Mm -hmm. they come when they they talk about electric vehicles it's it's really quite stunning to tell you the truth when i read on you know traditional media from ctv cbc globe and mail so many mistakes it's really i find it really surprising yeah yeah 
I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know what you're talking about. In fact, I think you and I were on a panel last year that, that was put on by, by one, I don't even remember which of the media agencies uh, that, that we were, we were part of a panel of a, of a, of a number of uh, presenters. And what we heard from uh, the other presenters was, frankly, a lot of uh, inaccurate information about the, the, the reality of the, the, the move to electrification. But listen, yeah. um, we will add to our reading list uh, by uh, the report by the Union of Consumers scientists the yes. title of the report is time for a u-turn automakers history of intransigence and an opportunity for change what a fantastic recommendation given our conversation uh yep. is right up the uh yeah right this is this is right up uh right up our alley uh, so with that danielle i want to thank you very much for for taking the time to uh to to chat uh, and uh, I, I, you know, look forward to continuing the dialogue that you and I have, have had and the work that we're doing together uh, on yep. uh, electrification of, of, of transportation. Absolutely, Francis. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future episodes Please take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, and let me know what you think of the Flux Capacitor. You can find me on Twitter or X as at Brad Bradley. The website for this pod is thefluxcapacitor.ca, and it includes links for this episode on the show page, this being episode 91. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.